All right, Genesis chapter 30 is where we pick back up. Last time we ran down as far as verse 24, and kind of the narrative right where we pick up in the middle of here kind of runs from where it's at really toward the end of chapter 31, so we'll see where we can get Lord willing tonight. But remember, we've been kind of watching the work of God in the life of Jacob, this next patriarch uh, in the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and we've seen certainly that Jacob has God's call upon his life, but uh, it seemed that like many of us who God's calling is upon all of our lives in different ways, that there were obviously some things that God, as a result of that, kind of needed to grind out of Jacob's life a little bit, uh, some carnality, uh, some of the conniving and some of the fleshly tendencies that were clearly there in Jacob. In some ways, we look at him and uh, like Peter and others that we can relate to. We can certainly relate to uh, the life of Jacob in many ways, how many times he was trying to get his hand involved and uh, was seeking to accomplish things on his own rather than just letting God work on his behalf. And uh, God certainly had a calling on his life. God had a plan for him. Uh, he was next in line, uh, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God had a wonderful intention for his life. But remember, uh, the Lord had sent him away, and it seems that it took God about 20 years to work through some of these things in his life. And God sends him away. He's been away from home now the past 14 years. He's been with Laban. Uh, at this time, he's now inherited, remember, his two wives who he worked for Laban for 14 years, for seven years for each wife, for uh, both Aaliyah uh, as well as his wife Rachel. And they're working for Laban. And remember, in Laban, uh, Jacob finally really meets his match. Uh, and in such the way that God often works, sometimes one of the most powerful things God will use in our lives to orchestrate some of the things that he needs to do in us character-wise is he'll just put a certain person in our life uh, and sometimes he puts someone in our life quite honestly that has some of the same tendencies that we do uh, to kind of allow us to see maybe a little bit of the reality of who we are and sometimes to just be that individual that kind of almost is a tool of the Lord to just kind of grind on certain areas of our life and almost like, you know, the polishing process of a stone. Uh, God will put somebody into our life maybe that's difficult, that causes us hassle and headache and challenges in our lives, but yet nonetheless God is using that person like he's using circumstances and like he's using everything else to really to shape us, to mold us, to drive things out of us. Uh, to bring us more to the image and the likeness of Jesus. And certainly that's exactly what Laban was to Jacob, because Laban was a master deceiver. He was a conniver. He was one of those kind of individuals that if you didn't have your hand upon your wallet when you were around him, anything that he could do to get from you, he was going to get it out of you. And Jacob was really dealing with this whole process. And no doubt through it all, God, I believe, was speaking to his heart and was just further preparing him for the plans that he had for him. So uh, at this point, we come to verse 25 here in chapter 30, and it tells us that it came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph. Now, again, remember, that was the 11th son uh, born to Jacob because you have Jacob married to Rachel and Leah. Remember, he wanted to marry Rachel. That was the love of his life. 
but yet on the wedding night, this great deception somehow was pulled off, and lo and behold, uh, as Jacob rolled over in the morning, it wasn't Rachel, but when the veil was lifted, it was Leah, and he got the older sister, the firstborn, and Laban had pulled this deception, and then he had to, remember, uh, work another seven years in return for Rachel, so he's married to Rachel He's married to Leah. Both of them have a handmaid, uh, which in that day, culturally, it was another way to basically propagate your family line. So between these four women, he now has 11 sons. Of course, we know these 11 sons are 11 of the 12 sons who will become the 12 tribes of Israel. Benjamin will not be born until later on. But at this point now, when the 11th son is born, so you have him now, uh, two wives, 11 sons, he's been there for 14 years, it seems this critical season starts to kind of take a transition, and, and God has a way of bringing our life in seasons and transitions, and it seems at the birth of Joseph, there was something that began to stir in Jacob, where Jacob, it says, when Joseph was born, went to Laban and said to him, send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own country. So at this point, he begins to have a stirring to desire to go back to his homeland. Now, what's interesting is this stirring is in his heart, and he won't go back to his homeland for another six years. The stirring is from the Lord, and of course, we know that was God's plan, ultimately, that he needed to be back in the land of Canaan itself, because that was the promised land which he would inherit uh, through the, again, covenant of Abraham, his grandfather, it passed then to Isaac, and then ultimately to Jacob, who will become the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. But remember, God had sent him away and told him, look, I'm going to bring you back to this land. But nonetheless, he was being sent away for a time. And, and again, many times the Lord does that. The Lord has to, you know, put a call on our life, and then he prepares us for that call. And for Jacob, it was a 20-year process. And here he begins to have this stirring now. It is part of God's plan to ultimately go back to the land of Canaan. But interestingly enough, it won't happen for another six years still. And sometimes God's stirrings begin in our heart many times way before the situational circumstance ever comes to pass of what God's going to do in our life. And one of the gravest mistakes we can make sometimes is we have a stirring from the Lord. And sometimes we instantly assume that means we're supposed to do something right away. And that may not always be the case. Sometimes God may speak to us something. He may stir our heart about something and put something in our heart. And it may not be for six months, six years, or 16 years down the road. And the important thing is that we stay in step with the Lord's timing. And this stirring begins to happen in his heart where he says to Laban, Okay, listen, I'm ready. Send me back to my own place, to my own country. He says, verse 26, Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, and let me go, for you know my service which I have done for you. In other words, look, I've worked, I fulfilled, again, this is the end of those 14 years, he worked seven years for Rachel, that was the arrangement for the dowry, and then when he realized he got deceived, he said, okay, why did you trick me like this? And Laban said, okay, I'll tell you what, you work another seven years for me, and I'll give you Rachel as a wife as well now that you've had to marry Leah. So he comes to the end of that season, he's thinking, okay, I fulfilled my obligation, that was what I intended, 14 years, I'm done, I'm out of here. Well, that was his perspective, but that wasn't God's perspective. 
And sometimes we get like that. Okay, I fulfilled my obligation on this date at this time on that day. That's the day, and I'm out of here. And I'm ready, and I'm gone. And I'm. And the reality is, we need to remember, like the psalmist says, my times are in your hands. Our lives don't belong to ourselves, and our time doesn't belong to us, and our calendar many times isn't God's calendar. Uh, and he's ready to go here, but again, we'll see. God will situationally keep him there for another six years. Is it a result of some of the activities and human relationships among men? Yeah, but ultimately, God's sovereign. And ultimately, we must recognize that it was the hand of God that did keep him where he was for another six years. And I think it's because God needed to teach him some more things about himself and God needed to teach him some more things about who his God was. And there were more lessons that he needed to learn to be more adequately prepared for that ultimate season that lie ahead of him down the road. So he says, send me away. Well, verse 27, Laban says to him, please stay. If I found favor in your eyes, for I have learned, he says, notice, by experience, and literally the Hebrew there, interesting, means by enchantments. And again, what that ultimately refers to, uh, we don't know. But somehow Laban seems to be somebody who was into maybe divination. We're going to see later on that he has uh, these idols, these small gods or teraphim that are in his house that many times were used for divination purposes. But nonetheless, Laban says... I've learned by experience, by observing, he says, that the Lord has blessed me for your sake. And then he said to him, name your wages and I will give it. Would to God all of our bosses would say that. Could you imagine, would you imagine that? You know you know what? Hey, I, I mean, I'm done. I've, I've given you 14 years at the company here and I'm ready to move on. Uh, you know, and and oh, I don't want you to move on because, you know, you've been such a good employee and, and the company has been blessed and it's prospered in your division because of all that you've done. And I recognize it. And I think it is a wonderful thing uh, as one of God's children when because of the way we put our hand to the work that we do, whatever it is. Whether it's tending the flock of somebody, as Jacob was doing, or whether it's taking care of their, you know, uh, particular area in a factory, or something that has to do with computer systems, or taking care of customer service, or whatever, that whatever we do for whoever that we serve, that God puts us in that place, that, that they would be able to look upon us as an employee and see something distinctive of the hand of God, and as a result of that, the blessing of God, that is upon what we do where they would realize, hey, as a direct result of this person serving me, uh, I'm being blessed in multiple different ways, that things are going well. And this is what Laban realized. He says, look, I realize Jehovah God, your God, has blessed me for your sake. That I, Would to God that our employers, whether they believe or not, would be able to recognize, we see this with Joseph later on in Potiphar's house, that our employers would recognize, wow, I am reaping the benefits because you, as a follower of your God, work for me. And that people would make that connection. It, you know, saddens me sometimes when some employers look at Christians and think, I'd rather hire anybody but one of them. Because instead of being hard and diligent workers, they're, you know, cutting corners or they're doing a sloppy job or they have no integrity or they're off witnessing to somebody when they're supposed to be working. And, you know, I, I think one of the greatest ways we can be a testimony for the Lord is to be a very distinct, different worker that the hand of God can bless and God can prosper what we do in our labors. And our employers would say, wow, do you have any more of these kind of followers of your God? Can you? I need some more employees. These are the kind that I want. 
And Laban here realized that he was doing well because of Jacob's presence. So he actually says, look, name your wages. What do you want? I want to keep you around because it's blessing my prosperity and business. So name your wages. Jacob said to him, you know, verse 29, how I have served you and your livestock has been with me. He took care of the flocks of Laban again. For what you had, he says, before I came was little and it has increased to a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since my coming and now when shall I also provide for my own house? So Jacob points out this reality. Notice that what he had done is he had actually increased what his employer had. He says, look, when I first came, your flock was small, it was little, and it has increased to a great amount because the Lord has blessed you since my coming here. And again, just a beautiful thing to see how, again, in good stewardship, in being a well and a diligent worker, you know, that's such a beautiful thing to be able to take what we're entrusted with and not only just to maintain it, but actually to multiply it and to advance it and to be able to present back something more. And that is, you know, the heart of the Lord. Remember, Jesus even taught the parable of the talents where, you know, one individual was given one, another was given five, another was given ten, and when the master returned... He gave an accounting of his servants, and those who multiplied what he gave to them, he commended and was blessed by it. The one who just buried what he had in the ground, and all he did was just maintain status quo. Well, I didn't lose anything, but I didn't advance or make any more. That was the one, remember, the master was very upset with. Uh, because, again, part of stewardship is not just protecting, but it's, it's saying, hey, what can I do to make things better? How can I make things better here at the job? How can I make things more prosperous and move things forward here to benefit the one whom I'm serving? And, and Jacob is pointing this out to Laban because this is exactly what had happened. But notice Jacob's concern in verse 30. He says, but now he says, when shall I provide for my own house? In other words, for 14 years I've served you and I've blessed and enhanced your business. But he says, you know, look, I, I got... Two wives, two handmaids, and 11 kids. So <laughs> at some point, I need to begin taking care of my own household, and I need to begin providing for myself ultimately to be able to stand independent. He says, I've given you 14 years, but I've got 11 young mouths to feed or you know, 11 kids and, and two wives and two handmaids as well as myself. So he says, I need to provide for my own house. And again, I love this hard attitude, verse 30. Notice that this again this is the kind you know, of, of man that God's, he, he wants to provide for his own. He has a sense of responsibility in him. You know, it is the right thing for me to provide for my own. You know, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, he says, if any man doesn't provide for his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's a strong admonition. It's a strong exhortation. That God gives that responsibility to, look, that, that we are to provide for our own. That that is part of our calling and part of our responsibility. And it's beautiful to see here this heart that Jacob has, again, uh, as a man wanting to make sure that he is a good provider. He says, when shall I provide for my own house? So he said to him, verse 31, Laban says, well, what shall I give you? What, what are you looking for? Jacob said to him, you shall give me nothing or give me not give me anything. If you'll do this thing for me, I will again keep your flock. So he's going he's to barter a business arrangement here. He's gonna, Jacob's going to kind of create a little business startup plan here. 
strategically. So look, I'm not asking for a handout. I'm not asking for any particular wages. What I'm asking for, give me an opportunity. Let me take a share of what you have. It's almost as if kind of you see an early you know, indication of this. Let me have a little share of the business and let me see what I can do with my own branch and my own division kind of is what he's after here. Watch what happens. He says, look, I'm not looking for a handout. You don't have to give me anything, but if you'll give me this thing, I will again take care of your flocks. In other words, I'll keep working for you and tending your flocks. Let me, verse 32, pass through all your flock today, removing from the speckled and spotted sheep and all the brown one among the lambs and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and these shall be my wages. So my righteousness will answer for me in time to come when the subject of my wages comes before you, every one that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and brown among the lambs will be considered stolen if it is with me. So here's the arrangement Jacob's making. He's saying, listen, what if you do this? Let me... Let me see what I can do to create a, a, a small flock for myself off of the existing flock that I take care of you. And he says, here's the arrangement, again, which would be a lot more uncommon, streaked or speckled, because that was a recessive gene. It was dominant to have a solid color. That was the dominant gene to be a, a stronger, solid colored animal. So he says, look, how about this? Why don't you go through, separate any of the streaked or spotted or speckled among the animals, pull them aside. And he says, from now on, let those be my wages. And he says, and let it be an indication that whenever there's any among your flock, I'll continue to tend your flock, that they're streaked or speckled or spotted, that those will be my wages. All the stronger, more dominant genes, those the, 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 the solid-colored animals, they will continue to be of your flock, but anything spotted or speckled, I'll begin to develop my own flock, and it'll be a clear indication that I didn't steal anything from you. It'll be a clear distinction in a way as I begin to try and de- – he's trying to develop his own flock here is what he's wanting to do, he says. And this will be a way that if ever among me, he says, there's brown among limbs, they'll be considered stolen. If they're with me, you'll be able to tell a difference. So he's going to care for Laban's flock and start to develop his own. Now – Laban said, oh, that it were according to your word. Now, Laban's no dummy. When he hears this, he realizes, oh, my goodness, this is a great opportunity for me because it would be a lot more common that the solid colored animals would be born because of the dominant gene. Usually the greater percentage of animals were solid colors, and it was only periodically that you might have that recessive gene show itself and you get a speckled or spotted animal. So Laban realizes, oh my goodness, this is a great opportunity for me. If that's what you want to do and you'll tend my flocks like that and you want to slowly, gradually try and build a small flock on a you know, periodic kind of you know, runt type animal that gets born once in a while out of a group that are born, uh, that's fine with me. He says, oh, that it were according to your word. But look what Laban does, verse 35. So he then removed that day the male goats that were speckled, spotted, and all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had some white in it, and all the brown ones among the lambs, and gave them into the hands, Laban did, of his sons. And then they put three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. So here's what Laban does. Laban says, listen, that sounds like a great deal. And then to almost trying again, ensure all the more his own prosperity and Jacob's demise and failure. 
he takes out of the existing flock every spotted animal, every speckled animal, and he tells his sons, listen, so that this conniver can't crossbreed any of these animals and try and get any more than possible. Here's what I want you, I want you to take every speckled, every spotted animal, and I want you to keep at least three days' journey between yourself and Jacob so there's no way these animals can interbreed. And now the chances of, again, you know, two solid colored animals producing a speckled or a spotted animal, you know, are all the more diminished. The percentages have just decreased all the more. But again, Jacob here is just dealing with this conniver Laban. So again, Jacob's kind of taking on an opportunity here where really he's completely trusting the provision of God and the fact that God is somehow going to have to prosper and give him success. But I like this. Again, what he's doing, he's willing to take on an opportunity saying, Lord, if this is going to happen, you're going to want to have to do it because the odds are stacked against me here. <laughs> There's no way unless you bless or make this happen, it's going to happen. And he takes a deal that is extremely unlikely for him on his end that he's going to succeed. And it's very advantageous for Laban who sets the terms here before him. Well, verse 37 tells us now this kind of peculiar thing we read here of what Jacob did. It says, Jacob took for himself rods of green poplar and of almond and chestnut trees, peeled the white strips in them and exposed them, exposed the white which was in the rods. And the rods which he had peeled, he set before the flocks in the gutters, that is in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink so that they should conceive when they came to drink. So the flocks conceived, the idea is that's where they mated, before the rods, and the flocks brought forth streaked, speckled, and spotted. And then Jacob separated the lambs, that is the younger animals, the lambs, and he made the flocks face toward the streaked and all the brown in the flock of Laban. But he put his own flocks by themselves and he did not put them with Laban's flock. So Jacob here, in integrity, he's keeping the two flocks separate, as was asked, making sure that he maintains that integrity. But he begins to sort of uh, you know, employ this technique here, and I don't know really a term to use for it other than some type of a technique, which to this day still, you know, different scientists weigh in on the fact of, you know, was there some, you know, credence to what he's doing here? It tells us in verse... 37 that he uses poplar and almond and chestnut trees and he peels back these strips and he he kind of sets them up near where the animals come to water and again you know was there something in this that he was thinking to himself somehow it would have an effect so that when the animals conceived or was there potentially uh, some type of a chemical uh, benefit that it was in the water as well that as they drank the water somehow it affected the gene pool and caused them I mean it almost seems so far-fetched could it be that Jacob knew something about husbandry and about tending flocks and about the reproductive cycles of animals because he was very experienced he had done this for many years that we simply don't know today in our own understanding of certain things well that's possible I mean it is a possibility obviously Jacob was doing this for some reason. I don't think he was just bored. So let me peel some almond chestnut trees. And you know, I mean, I don't think he just was bored out there. Obviously, he felt there was some reasoning behind what he was doing. Yet to this day, there is no one who seems to really be able to weigh in that there was a purpose scientifically behind what he was doing that we know this day 
would have caused this to happen. But nonetheless, it says what happens. Verse 39 says they were bringing forth streaked and speckled and spotted animals as they made it and as they conceived. So, again, was Jacob doing his best and then God was just blessing as God often does, you know, he's giving his little finite. This is the best I know, God. Uh, he, here's what I know how to do. I don't, you know, I don't have all the answers. I'm not the most skilled. I'm not the most intelligent. But I'm going to give my best in my own human capacity, in my own, you know, mental reasonings. And God, I just pray that you'll bless my efforts. Certainly, there's a part of that. But no doubt, this is just a demonstration of the grace of God. God is just blessing, and God is causing him to flourish by his grace and by his grace alone. It could be that what he was doing had no bearing on the genetic pool of the animal. It could have had no, but God was just blessing anyway. I know, I can't tell you how many times in my own idiocy and my lack of knowledge, I just, in spite of me, God does what God does. You know, how many times do we realize that when we do things for the Lord, again, whether it's in a place of vocation or whether it's in ministry, you know, we just, we try our best and God goes, I just, I can't believe that you actually think that that's going to work. But then in spite of us, God blesses and God calls us something to flourish and to work. And it really has nothing to do with us. It has everything with the fact that God wants to bless us and God wants to prosper us for his good purposes. And here, this little business venture that Jacob takes, uh, he seeks to, to develop a flock of his own. And look what God begins to do. God just begins to bless, and he begins to acquire more and more of these speckled and spotted animals. Verse 41 says, it came to pass, whenever the stronger livestock conceived, and this was smart, Jacob then placed the rods before the eyes of the livestock in the gutters, that they might conceive among the rods, but when the flocks were feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger were Jacob's. So that was wise. That's just natural selection there. He's making sure the strong, healthy animals are the ones that keep conceiving regularly so that he would have healthy animals. And again, this was just a wise implementation of natural selection and so forth. Verse 43, here's the conclusion of that. It says, thus the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks, female and male servants and camels and donkeys. So again, verse 43, Jacob became exceedingly prosperous. Why? Because God wanted him to. There's really no other answer. I don't think it was that he was that skilled. He prospered because God wanted him to prosper. God prospered him. God allowed him to be blessed and to prosper. He became exceedingly... He wasn't a perfect man. In many ways, Jacob was, was a very carnal and, and, and a very you know conniving man still. But yet, God, by his grace was blessing and prospering his life. The business began to just really excel as he was taking care of the herds, as he had large flocks. He needed then female and male servants. He had to hire more staff, the idea is. He had to bring on more people to help him and camels and donkeys. And notice as he begins to prosper and to blossom now, that causes another transition in his life. Chapter 31 begins by saying, Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, saying... Notice, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has acquired all this wealth. So the sons start to do what? They start to become envious now. And they say, what's this guy doing, man? 
This is this should be our inheritance. And now they're looking upon him. Now he's doing nothing wrong. He's only doing exactly what he arranged, but they now become envious. Why? They're becoming envious because of verse 43, because he's exceedingly prosperous. And a lot of times when somebody prospers and becomes exceedingly prosperous, people just get jealous and they get envious. And there's a difference between jealousy and envy. You know, jealousy is that sense of, you know, I, I wish I had what you had. That's jealousy. Envy is, I wish I had what you had, but if I can't have it, I don't want you to have it either. That's envy. It's a whole other level. Jealousy is one thing. Envy is, is, is when not only do I wish I had what you had, but if I can't have it, then I don't want you to have it either, and you shouldn't have it either. And therefore, I'm going to be mad because you have that. And this envy now begins to develop among the sons of Laban who watch Jacob prospering. They now begin to get angry. Hey, this, this guy's taken all the wealth of our father. This should be our money. This should be our wealth. What's he doing somehow prospering when this is our father? And verse 2 said, Jacob also saw the countenance of Laban, and indeed it was not favorable toward him as before. So he also began to notice that things were just sort of starting to change in the relationship dynamic between him and his boss Laban. And again, just paying attention to some of these indicators again, because sometimes God uses the dynamics in our relationships as indicators of what he's doing in our lives. And sometimes God will begin to make things uncomfortable and awkward and just will allow things to begin to get difficult in relationships and some of these kind of things to stir the nest sometimes in our lives. And he realizes, you know, the countenance of Laban, what I used to have with Laban, I don't have it anymore. Something's not right between us. And he could tell that, that what was there between he and Laban at one time, it was becoming unhealthy. And he says he saw the countenance of Laban. Indeed, it wasn't favorable, notice, as it was before. And it's at this point, verse 3, he says, And the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your family, and I will be with you. Again, just a fulfillment of Genesis 28. Because back in Genesis 28, God said, Look, you're going to leave. But one day you will return back to this land. So now he hears the word of the Lord to confirm what the stirring in his heart has been and what circumstances seem to dictate. And, and you'll notice that these three many times find themselves threaded together in Scripture when God's leading someone. There's a stirring in our heart. There's a circumstantial confirmation. And then there's the word of the Lord that is attached to those two things. And I think it's important that we look many times for those three things. Again, the Bible says by the mouth of two or three witnesses, things are established. And many times when God is leading, there's this process and there's this kind of culmination, like a perfect storm of these things. There's a stirring in our hearts. Something begins to stir in our heart. God puts a desire in our heart. The Bible says that God works in us to will and to act according to his good pleasure. And then circumstances begin to, to kind of come together, maybe an open door or some closed doors or, or, and relationship, and God brings circumstances in alignment with that stirring in our heart. And then many times the word of the Lord, God speaks to us clearly and directly and many times repeatedly reemphasizing the same message to us. And I say look for those three things because sometimes if you see one but you don't sense the others, you better be careful because I'll tell you, there are many times in my heart stirred and I think about something or I have some novel idea and I want to serve the Lord or do something 
And quite honestly, it's a good idea, but it's not a God thing. You understand? It's a good idea, but it's not God's idea. And sometimes our hearts are stirred, but yet the circumstances are indicating something different than what I think stirring in my heart. That's why it's good to wait. Because sometimes our heart may be stirred, but if God doesn't orchestrate circumstances, then maybe God's saying, no, 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 I, I know that your heart was stirred about that, but the circumstances are saying something different, and many times circumstances are the fingerprints of God, and God's sovereign. And sometimes our heart's stirred, we don't want to jump into something. If our hearts are stirred, wait to see if God brings circumstances together with that. And wait to see that there's a confirmation of the word of the Lord. Sometimes I can read something in the Bible. I feel like God keeps speaking something. I feel like God keeps speaking something. I feel like I keep reading something in the Bible. But you know what? Maybe the circumstances aren't lining up with that. And we have to be sensitive. You know, We want to make sure that when we're seeking to follow the will of God that we're walking prudently. We're taking measured steps of faith, and we're not just jumping presumptuously into things because, again, that, that, then we're going to end up having a Christian life that's like a ping-pong table, you know, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And, and I don't think God intends us to be that way. I think God intends us to live our lives. Many times it's in seasons, but he wants us to stay in step with what his plans and his intentions are. And sometimes we need to wait on God's timetable, and we need to sort things out and make sure, you know, I think that's the Lord, but if it's not... I need to be humble enough to say, you know what, I had that idea, but I'm glad I waited because I, I think God's showing me something different now a few weeks later or a few months later. And, and, and Jacob here, the three came together, but sometimes they don't in our lives. And I think it's a good testing ground for these kind of things. So God tells him, Jacob, okay, it's time now to go back to Canaan, back to where your family was. I'll be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the field to his flock, it seems he wants to have a private meeting with his two wives, so he brings them out to where he was tending the flocks. And he said to them, I see your father's countenance, that it is not favorable towards me as before. But the God of my father has been with me, and you know that all my might I have served your father. Yet your father has, notice, deceived me and changed my wages ten times. Imagine that. And you think, you think your job's bad. Ten times. Ten times his boss, Laban, changed this guy's wages, again, trying to diminish his wages, trying to take from him so that he did not have a chance to succeed. He says, your father has changed my wages ten times, but look at the rest of the verse, verse 7, but God did not allow him to hurt me. Man, how wonderful. Jacob, one of the things Jacob learned, he learned the preservation of God. And he learned the protection of God. And he, he recognized that if my trust is in the Lord and God is my covering and God is my protection, my preservation, it doesn't matter what man does to me. Man can do nothing more to me other than what God allows to be done to me. And sometimes, you know, people do things to deceive us. People do things to hurt you, to take advantage of you, to rip you off, to rob you. Listen, you don't have to put on the gloves all the time. You don't always have to get into the ring and defend yourself. So many times I think that we feel this need. Hey, well, I don't stick up for myself. I don't stand up for myself. Nobody else has gone to. And then we tell each other that. And we counsel people to that. Oh, you got to stand up for yourself. I don't really see anywhere in the Bible where it tells a Christian to stand up for themselves. I see in the Bible where that we are to walk in meekness and humility and things where Jesus says supernaturally, like if somebody slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. That, that if somebody compels you to go a mile, say, you know what, how about if I go two miles for you? I see a higher calling as a child of God that we're called to. I see the Bible showing us that at times we are going to be 
hurt or or you know deceived or taken advantage of. Paul had to tell the Corinthians, remember, what were they famous for? They were famous for suing one another. And Paul says, what are you doing? You're taking each other to court. You can't solve your own problems. He talks to them about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And one of his advice to them in that section is, look, why not just let yourself be wronged once in a while? Do you always have to fight for your rights? Why can't once in a while you just say, you know what? I'll just let myself be wronged. And just trust the Lord with it. You don't think that when somebody rips us off, God can't return something to us and go deal with them in a much much more effective way in our lives. And here Jacob was just learning. He was learning the fact that, yes, he had been deceived. Yes, he had been you know, the, the recipient, the victim of somebody trying to harm him. But he says, though your father changed my wages ten times, he said, one thing I learned, God, God never allowed him to hurt me. It never hurt me now. It's God still took care of me. He kept watching over me and preserving me. Verse 8, he then says, kind of as a description, he said, whenever your father said the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flocks started bearing speckled. And then he said, wait, no, 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 change that. I change, that's not the contract. We're rewriting the contract, he says. Then your dad would say, all right, all the streaked are going to be your wages. Okay, Laban, if that's the way, then all the flocks would bore streaked. And he says, see, God just had a way to take care of it. He kept changing the rules all the time. But look, he changed the rules. So God was, okay, well, fine. He changed the rules. I'll just change my rules. And God, God would just work on his behalf. And how beautiful that the Lord does that for us. Verse 9, Jacob says confidently, so God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. And you know, the Lord can do that. The Bible says that God declares the world is mine in all of its fullness. God's the owner of anything and everything. So, so Jacob says, God, not me, God has taken away your father's flock and has given that flock to me. And he realized that God did it in his sovereignty, and God can do that. God can take away from one, and God can give it to another if God so desires. That's his prerogative. And Jacob just realized this was the hand of the Lord caring for him and orchestrating his purposes and plans by his grace and it happened verse 10 at the time when the flocks conceived that i lifted my eyes and saw in a dream he says i had a dream about this and behold the rams which leaped upon the flocks were streaked and speckled and gray spotted he says and then an angel of god spoke to me in a dream saying jacob and i said here i am and he said lift your eyes now and see all the rams which leap on the flocks are streaked speckled and gray spotted God said to him, Jacob, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. You know, that, that's a tremendous comfort. You know, maybe somebody recently has been deceiving you. They've been taking advantage of you. You know, just, you're getting the raw end of a deal and somebody's ripping you off and, you know, trying to, to do things to take advantage of you in your job or to hurt or harm you and your family. And just to know, God says, look, I, I see I know what Laban's trying to do to you. I see how he's trying to take advantage of you. I see how he's mistreating you. I see how he's being harsh with you and hurtful. He says, I see all that Laban is doing to you. Verse 13, God says to him, and I am the God of Bethel. And that was meaningful to Jacob because remember, that was the first place that God revealed himself in a real personal and powerful way to Jacob. Jacob, I am that same God that revealed myself to you initially that God that said that I would bless you and protect you and provide for you. I'm the God of Bethel. Remember, he says, where you anointed me 
and the pillar where you made a vow to me. Now arise, get out of this land, and return to the land of your family. Again, Jacob is saying, go back to where you started, back to Bethel. And Bethel was the place where really his relationship with God really began. And in some ways, I think not only was God calling Jacob back geographically, to the place where he was supposed to be for God's calling to be fulfilled as a patriarch of Israel. But I think there's a part of this where God's calling him to a return spiritually as well. And we'll see this more, especially as we get into chapter 32 next time. Uh, Bethel, again, that was the place where everything began, really spiritually, for Jacob, where he really had an encounter with God in a personal way, and he made a vow to God. He made his own commitment, you shall be my God and God's saying, look, you need to get back to that. Jacob, you've kind of you kind of got a little off track a little bit in, in, in being out here. And Jacob, you, you're, I need your heart, not just your body. I need your heart back in Bethel. I need you back to that place where everything began. And sometimes I think the Lord does that for all of us. He calls us back to that place where it all began for us. Again, in the book of Revelation, remember Jesus says to the church of Ephesus 30 years after their ministry, he says, and look, I see all the great works that you're doing for me. I'm so glad you're busy and you labor and you do all that. And you got your, you know, your Christian dynamic and disciplines. You I mean, you have it down to a T. You know what to do and when to do it. And you got it all outlined perfectly. But he says, but I have one problem. You've left your first love. You're not enthusiastic about me anymore. You're not passionate about me anymore. It's not, it's not relationally driven. It's all routine driven. There's no passion. There's no personal interest. It's just discipline now. It's just duty. It's just routine. And, and sometimes the Lord calls us back and he says, look, I, I want you to go back. He, he told the church of Ephesus, repent. Go back and do the first works. And sometimes there's that need for us in our lives to go back to Bethel, back to that place where it began in our heart with the Lord, where we would return back out of the, maybe the place where we're at and back to that place of real intimacy and experiential relationship with the Lord. Well, verse 14, Rachel and Leah hearing Jacob's testimony to them and that God was telling him to leave their father and the, the, the business there and return back to the land of Canaan. Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there still any portion or inheritance for us in our father's house? Are we not considered strangers by him? For he has sold us. And also completely consumed our money. For all these riches which God has taken from our father are really ours and our children's. Again, the idea being is that they realized that Laban apparently was a very bad money manager. That working for seven years should have been a time where he was preparing and laying up dowry for his daughters. And what the daughters recognized is said, look, everything that he should have been laying aside for us, he's just consumed it on himself anyway. He's just squandered money and, and really seems to be Laban does someone who just was not a very good manager of resources. You know, he was a man certainly who was prosperous as well, but apparently he did not manage and he had nothing to show for it. Look, our father has completely consumed our money. Our inheritance has just been squandered away. We don't have anything to, to wait around here for anyway. Look at verse 16. So they say to their husband, now whatever God has said to you, do it. Boy, that's good. And that's a beautiful picture there of a healthy dynamic from a marital perspective that, that as Jacob shares with his wives, you know, look, here's what God's showing me. Here's what God's put on my heart. This is what I believe the Lord's leading. 
that in this very respectful, supportive way, look, the way whatever God has said to you, do it. Not, are you kidding me? Do you think God told you that? You know, whatever God has said to you, do it. If God's leading and you believe I've heard from God, you've heard from God, then we support you, we stand behind you, we'll follow you. And it's just a very, very beautiful thing. Again, and keep in mind, Jacob needed this. Because what was Jacob? Jacob was ready to take them away from their family, away from their security and their comfort zone and everything they knew, and to take them hundreds of miles to a strange place that they had never been before. And this is an incredible testimony of faith in these these wives' hearts relationally towards their husband. They would say, hey, listen, we're willing to submit to you. We're willing to respect what God has put in your heart. And if that's what God has put into your heart, then do it. And rather than challenge what he thought God was showing him, instead, they lovingly come alongside in a submissive, respectful way, and they encourage him. Hey, if this is what God's showing you, do it. We're your cheerleaders. We're on your team. We support you. And it's just a very, very beautiful picture. And I'll tell you, ladies, that, that husbands need that. They need that. And the ladies say all the time, I wish my husband would lead. I wish my husband would lead. But then when he goes to lead, you challenge and complain and criticize everything that he does. And then what happens? Th- then he gets frustrated. And he questions himself. Well, every time I try and make a decision, she challenges my decision. Well, who cares then? I'm tired of making this. And, and, and it just backfires. Listen, maybe he makes a few dumb mistakes. Let him learn. Encourage him. Support him. Give him the opportunity. And I tell you, this is the way God's created him. And when you do this, and again, note, whatever God has said to you, do it. There's an emphasis of, as long as God has said that to you, whatever God, you better pray about it. But if God's told you, then I'm on your team. I'm on your side. I'll support you. But again, this beautiful demonstration of encouragement, this is so important because I'll tell you, this will make your husband soar. This will make him grow. This will force him to become the leader that God intends for him to be, making those ultimate decisions on behalf of the family. By the same token, guys, Mm -hmm. notice the confirmation there. And I think as husbands, we need to look for that. I think that when we're following the Lord, it may take time, but one of the clear evidences we're following the Lord is our wife will have a confirming voice as our partner to say, you know what, yeah, that sounds crazy. But if that's what God's told you, let's do it. Let's do it. I'm on your side. And I think that confirming voice is something a wise husband listens for and looks for in his wife and the wisdom that God has given to her and as a companion as she helps support him in the marriage relationship as a partnership. Verse 17, notice, So Jacob arose his sons and his wives on camels, and he carried away all his livestock and possessions which he had gained and acquired, and he gained them in Padam Aram to go back to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols, it says, that were her father's. Now again, why she does this, we have no idea. We don't have any indication of why she does it. Some say, well, she wanted to stop her father from his divination. Some people believe it was because she was still a little bit, you know, kind of living in both worlds. She thought there would benefit to these idols. And again, it was a very superstitious thing, these little idols. You know, if you see people remember back and they have little, you know, statue on their dashboard and they thought that kept them safe as they drived around type of a thing. Well, this is the idea here. It could be that she was doing it for her own benefit but she steals the idols that are in her father's house. So Jacob stole away, unknown to Laban the Syrian, 
and he didn't tell him that he intended to flee. So he fled with all he had, arose and crossed the river and headed toward the mountains of Gilead. It seems, again, Jacob is thinking, look, if I try and tell Laban, I'm out of here, he's going to try and stop me and hinder me. So rather than, and take note, rather than trust God that he was going to bring to completion everything he said he did and he would open the right doors, Jacob, he's doing the right thing, but he's kind of doing it the wrong way. Has God called him to leave? Yes. But the way he's going about leaving is going to cause more conflict and problems than it needed to because I think there's a sense of unbelief in his heart. And rather than trusting God can work it out and complete the process and give him the freedom and the green light to go, while Laban is away a few days off journey, he says, okay, pack up the kids, let's get out of here. And he he just kind of runs away without saying goodbye or anything of that nature. And notice verse 22, Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. So he took his brethren, pursued him for seven days journey, and he overtook him in the mountains of Gilead. But God had come to Laban the Syrian in a dream by night and said to him, be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. In other words, again, God intervenes, notice, to protect his servant. And how wonderful, you know, I appreciate that that God, again, can speak to somebody in a dream on our behalf. Again, this this had, shows you that God was more than able because as Laban's chasing down Jacob, thinking, what is he doing trying to run off like that? And he is angry and he's upset. Notice, Jacob's completely aware. And what's God doing? He's working for Jacob on Jacob's behalf, which if Jacob would have just stood put, God would have done that anyway. But how wonderful to see that God intervening and again, somebody intimidating, somebody hassling you, causing you problems. Listen, just pray. The Lord can go talk to him. He can go talk to anybody that needs to. God appears to Laban, who's not a believer, in a dream and says to him, listen, you better not say one word more. Then I would desire you to to Jacob because he is my servant, he says. So Laban overtook Jacob, and Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains, and Laban with his brethren pitched his tent in the mountains of Gilead. Notice now the confrontation, verse 26, And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you've stolen away unknown to me and carried away my daughters like captives taken with a sword? A little bit of family conflict. Why did you flee away secretly, he says, and steal away from me and not tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy and songs, with timbrel and a harp. Oh, come on, Dad. you got to be kidding me. <laughs> you know, that's the way it is. You know, there's the in-law, outlaw process going on there. You know, I would have sent you away with a party. Why would you? And you could tell again the deception that exists among this family. They all lie and deceive one another. Again, I would have sent you away with a party. Why would you run off like you were taking away secretly. And you did not allow me, verse 28, to kiss my sons and my daughters, to say goodbye to my grandkids and my own daughters. Now you have done foolishly in so doing. So he's pretty upset. Verse 29, is it not my power to do you harm? But the God of your father spoke to me last night. It's a good thing he did. He's saying, saying, be careful that you speak to Jacob, neither good nor bad. Verse 30, this is classic. And now you have surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house. Look at this. But why did you steal my gods? (laughs) Now, I mean, I don't know if that's divine sarcasm or obviously the Holy Spirit is just recording a conversation. But just consider that statement. 
Why did you steal my gods? Listen, if your God can be stolen, you got the wrong God. <laughs> True? Why you, I can't believe it. And the thing that upsets me more than anything is you stole my gods. How could you do such a thing? How could you steal my gods from me? You know, again, we laugh, but the truth of the matter is, you know, our God is whatever our master passion is. Whatever the driving thing is in our life that drives our decisions, that is the master passion, the thing that motivates us and directs our every decision and our every desire that has the most of our allegiance and the most of our attention, truly, that is our God. That is our God. And and that being said, there are some gods, I guess you could say, that they can be stolen. Some gods are pieces of, you know, furniture or or maybe some material possession or something with, you know, a a shiny paint job and four wheels or or maybe it's a position that someone can steal away or that you can lose from you. But, you know, again, if you have a God that can be stolen, you've got the wrong God. Because the one true and living God can't be taken away from you. Because Jesus assured us, I will never leave you and I'll never forsake you. You know, God's assured to be with us all the time. And, and again, Romans 8 says that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. How sad, insecure, and tragic that so many people in our world, in their blindness, have gods that don't support them. They have to support their God. <laughs> I don't want a God that I have to support, that i got to worry about if it got stolen. I need to go chase down and recover my God, go help my guy away. I need to go help my God out. Somebody stole it. My God's captive. Come back here. You know, I want a God that helps me. I need a God that supports me and upholds me, that, that can lead me to a rock higher than I, that when my heart is overwhelmed, that my God is the one who's holding me. Listen, this evening... If you have nothing else and everything else is stolen away from you and taken away from you, and this is a very uncertain world, and I can't promise what you have today that you're going to have next week, next month, or next year, whether it be a person or a possession or a position, but I can tell you this, if you have the Lord, you have the most secure thing that there is. You are the most secure person on this planet. Because nobody can steal you away from him. Jesus says that no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. And nobody, one, thing God, one thing that people can't steal from you is God. People can take everything from you, but they can't take your relationship with God from you. Treasure that. Value that. Here, sadly, Jacob and Laban, two distinct differences. One had the right God. The other had a wrong God. And what a distinction that is between us and the world. And what a message that gives us to share with people as we watch people around us losing things and becoming hopeless and grabbing and trying to keep, hey man, can I, can I talk to you about something? You got the wrong God. Can, can I tell you about a, a God that will never leave you and that a God that you can't lose and that will take care of you? And people need to hear that message because we live in a really unstable, hopeless world. And God's given us a great testimony to share with people. Let's stand. Let's pray. We'll have to close out there. Our time's eluded us. We'll pick up next time. Father, thank you for just your word and the things that are shared here within it. 
Lord, we ask and pray that by your spirit you would lead us through this week, that you'd bring your word to our remembrance to walk in these things and the truths that you've illuminated in our hearts. And we commit the reindeer this week to you, Lord. Use us, if you would, as you will, among those around us to speak to people about the one true and the living God among us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.